Welcome to the Change in Construction podcast, brought to you by Mailmanager, the email management solution developed by Arab. It's Joseph here from Mailmanager, and I'm delighted to be joined by James Morris from Maya Brown to discuss how to make joint ventures successful. So firstly, James, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I was wondering if you could give our listeners a little bit of background to yourself and your work. Sure. Thanks very much, Joseph. And thanks for the invitation to uh, come on and and speak to you about this. Really appreciate it. Uh, So I'm a partner in the construction disputes practice here at Mayor Brown. Um, I've been doing that now for probably a bit longer than I care to remember the last 12 years and just advise on a range of of different construction disputes and uh, all all sorts of different issues that that go with that joint ventures um, coming up uh, perhaps a bit more frequently than usual recently. That's great, James. Uh, Thank you very much. So I guess we could start off with discussing reasons for joint ventures. So why many projects are starting to see more joint ventures? Sure, yeah. So I think it, it, it depends on... The different parties involved and what perspective you're looking at it from but I'll, I'll run through a few of them um, so the first one that is is often uh, referred to is the fact that it's useful to pull one's expertise with other um, joint venture partners and broaden the skills that you're able to offer to a particular opportunity that you might be tendering for to Im- improve your chances of, of winning the bid essentially so that's that's often a, a common one. Um, the other can be that for sometimes the perhaps junior member of the joint venture uh, might wish to broaden their skills a little bit um, and gain experience in a market that perhaps they didn't have much expertise in, but the bigger joint venture partner might do and thereby sort of take advantage of that experience and, and broadening out their own experience. Um, and I think sometimes it can just be a simple case of, sort of working together with another entity can can help reap bigger rewards for the both of you if, if you're successful in, in, in working together in that way, which we'll, I'm sure, cover later. The other um, issue that we often uh, hear from clients is that, you know, it's, it's an opportunity really to share risk, particularly on very large projects where um, there's, there's huge sums involved and also huge opportunity potentially, uh, huge rewards to be made, but also they're quite big risk. And, you know, there's a number of large, particularly international projects that fall into that category where any one party wouldn't necessarily want to be uh, in that situation alone. And, and perhaps they're not able to offer the broad church of experience that's required either. So can often be a combination uh, of factors. Another one that that I've seen quite frequently on big international projects um, in certain jurisdictions is where there's a local requirement sort of imposed by local law to have a certain number of local tradesmen or uh, employees work on the project uh, to meet that kind of regulatory requirement. So that sometimes means that you get perhaps a big well-known international contractor perhaps um, uh, that teams up with a a smaller local contractor just because you know they know the market they know uh, the local workforce and it's easier for them to sort of fulfill that requirement by teaming up with somebody local essentially. 
So I guess it's just a way for everyone to increase their capabilities, whether it's in terms of the manpower or the shared risk. You probably would be the best person to ask this one. So who, how would be the best way to structure a joint venture? Sure. There's, there's a number of, uh, of options here. Um, the two that we see most frequently um, are firstly an unincorporated alliance. So there's just an agreement between two or more companies uh, about how they're going to work together. Um, the second, perhaps more formal uh, arrangement is the incorporated joint venture company. And that if you go for that option, uh, there's a number of other questions that come up from that in terms of where you want to register that entity. Is it going to be uh, in the same jurisdiction as the project that's taking place? Is that your home jurisdiction? Do you understand the laws that govern incorporation of companies? Uh, and we've seen that recently on a couple of projects where that is really crucial to, to make sure that you've thought all that through in advance and, and understood and taken advice about what the implications of, of doing that might be in terms of what you know which one you choose between i think it really depends on you know a variety of factors but things like tax implications competition law issues and regulatory issues that again it, it, it's really important i think that two entities or, or more that are considering taking that step um, really do think about that in advance and take good advice early on about what's going to be the best way of of managing all of this from a sort of structural perspective um, so that it minimizes their liabilities and, and and sort of increases the opportunity for them to make a success of the project because after all sort of starting things off is, is quite important to get off on the right foot um, and if you make a, 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 an error in, of judgment in terms of how you structure it to start with, it it wouldn't bode well for, for the future, I don't think. I guess it's quite crucial to remember, like, one style doesn't fit all. And from the early onset, you have to make sure it's quite tailored to each organisation. Yeah, absolutely, Joseph. That's, that's exactly right. Uh, and I think the only way that you can do that is, unfortunately, and no one likes to do it, I know, but uh, sit, sit around the table with your advisors uh, and sort of run through what it is you're both trying to achieve and try to come up with a structure that everyone's happy with. Perhaps easier said than done, but the, the sort of time that you invest in the beginning of these things really does pay dividends, um, as we'll, we'll probably come on to talk about a bit later on. So what happens within a disagreement? So before like you even get a dispute, like just an initial disagreement I must arise? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that's um, sort of touching back on the, the point we were just talking about, really, um, having as part of that point where you're, where you're structuring everything and, and, and sort of putting agreements in place, it is important to, to think about those kind of run-of-the-mill daily disagreements that don't quite sort of elevate into a dispute and ultimately, you know, trying to avoid the situation where it gets into a formal dispute because you can bet that if that happens, things are going to be more complicated in terms of doing the actual work that the JV is there to do. So, yeah. you know, thinking about the sort of procedures you might have in place for uh, resolving disagreements or even before you get to a disagreement how is the thing going to operate how's the joint venture going to operate who controls it who has the casting vote when decisions are being made can you rotate that around for instance so that 
you know, perhaps one company has the chairman in uh, in situ for one part of the the duration of the joint venture, and then another for the for another part, and and so on, thereby sort of investing everybody really in the decision making and making sure that the power doesn't all rest with one entity. Because you know, from our experience and and the, the joint ventures that we've seen that that haven't quite worked how everybody hoped, which just because of the nature of, of, of our job and what we advise on is uh, tend to be the ones that we see because I'm sort of in, uh, involved in advising on disputes. So the main reason for that is because these things haven't been thought through at the outset often and everybody goes into the uh, joint venture with a very optimistic and rightly so they can be very successful but a very optimistic mindset and perhaps don't think about how this balance of power can be achieved and the party who benefits or from the outset thinks they're benefiting from that often thinks that they've sort of won the day in the original negotiation but sometimes in practice that doesn't always work out to be the case because you know if the wheels fall off at the end or or part way through even then nobody's going to benefit from that so i would say at the outset of negotiating all of this it's quite important to keep that in mind and the fact that you're working together with another company um, that will often have slightly different ways of doing things if not ways of seeing things and approaching things and trying to find that common thread in a way that you can work together that benefits both of you is really really important because it will keep uh, the trust in the relationship and and hopefully mean that you achieve a successful outcome on whatever the project is that you're working on. So I guess really ensuring the but the joint venture is future-proof from the early onsets for both parties? Absolutely. So what are the different types of disputes resolutions once a dispute does take place? Sure. So there's there's a variety of things that you can build into the agreement, the sort of first, and, and you can have these tiered resolution clauses, uh, which you know really are designed to sort of gradually escalate things to see if you can resolve things earlier on in the process before it gets necessary to to go to the um the worst case scenario which is sort of arbitration or litigation so working back from there the starting point is usually to have some sort of say tiered resolution clause that starts perhaps with a sort of the the project manager or the the head project manager on a project meeting with the other um, project manager to sort of try to resolve things uh, do you find most of the time they get resolved quite early on? Sure, there are definitely those disputes that are capable of resolution much earlier on, and those usually are things that are perhaps smaller value and not essential to the um, operation of the joint venture. But there are always going to be those ones that are more contentious, that it's difficult for perhaps less senior people to resolve themselves. But I think one thing we often as as lawyers don't do uh, clients credit for is the fact that they are dealing with these things day in day out and you know very few things run perfectly or smoothly uh, and the vast majority of of those issues do get resolved and commercial resolutions get found uh, and things move on and progress gets made and projects get completed Um, we see the very small portion of uh, issues that don't get resolved and turn up and turn into, um, you know, hard fought disputes quite often. So we are, our view of it is in that sense, um, probably a bit skewed, but 
after the sort of project managers or, or the people who are sort of running the joint venture day to day are, you know, if they can't resolve it through discussion and um, perhaps correspondence, then the next step is often for it to be referred up to sort of the CEO level, perhaps, or somebody more senior in the organisation to see if that can be uh, can come to a resolution. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's a number of other tiers on from there. So, you know, there's dispute review boards, expert determination, often those things are written into contracts, which are, you know, designed to be uh, you know, semi-formal um, submissions made and and a kind of de- binding decision given, say, but they're not um, quite as adversarial, shall we say, as an arbitration or litigation. They're usually not as expensive either. Um, they might be on discrete issues as they come up, whereas you know, on complicated projects, um, it can often be the case that arbitration or litigation covers so many different facets of things that might have gone wrong by that point that it becomes very, very costly and very, very time consuming for everybody. So would you say the accessibility of information can play a huge factor in the outcome of a dispute? Absolutely. I mean, I think um, having accessible information, as I was saying earlier, being open with the joint venture partner as much as you possibly can be, um, and communication between you is absolutely key. Um, it's it's again something we've seen on on quite a few projects, um, uh, particularly international projects with 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 different uh, companies of different nationalities, sort of understanding one another um, and exactly what the other is trying to achieve. It sometimes it seems like people are talking at cross purposes, and I. I think that often that is because people don't have the um, whole picture of precisely what's going on and, and have that information available to them and, and accessible to them. So I, I think that, that being as open as parties can be, and I appreciate that in some uh, situations that can be dif- difficult where perhaps you've got two competitor companies in normal circumstances thrust together for a particular project for a particular reason where there is perhaps a bit of starting suspicion or desire not to give access to all information and and keep things uh, back perhaps for perhaps strategic reasons and competitive advantage reasons Um, but that in my view isn't isn't the most helpful start to a joint venture relationship because it does tend to sort of sow seeds of doubt of suspicion um, which ends in um, often, I think, failure of the joint venture in one way or another, whether that's you know, not quite achieving things as efficiently as you might have done on the one hand, or you know, perhaps to the point where the joint venture partners aren't able to work together effectively anymore, which is obviously the, the disaster scenario. Have you found as well that the industry as a whole has had a greater ability to retrieve information? So when a dispute arises that they can go back, say, like three to six months and recall the information is still quite an issue. Absolutely. No, I think the um, advent of technology over recent years um, and the proliferation of of information and data gathering, um, I mean, it presents its challenges, but it certainly means that there is no shortage of information, uh, usually on construction projects. 
it's more a case i think of the way in which it's managed at the time which can vary from project to project yeah. some people are very good at keeping uh really detailed records and really well organized records others um you know are, are too busy focusing quite rightly on getting the job done and not about how they're they're filing things which is fine while the going is is good so to speak but when things go wrong obviously trying to access that information and uh, and understanding it and putting it in context is the challenge and and that's an expensive process i mean i think this is going to be a really um important area in the future joseph because as you'll know there's just more and more data being uh generated all the time on you know various walks of life but particularly on construction projects I've heard clients talk um, over the last couple of years about uh, more information in terms of drone footage. We've seen it also in terms of GoPro footage on you know, hard hats, that sort of thing. This is all yeah. going to lead to you know, a greater amount of information that's going to need to be managed in order for when disputes do arise you know, to, to the person's best advantage. I guess nowadays we have like the greatest level of information we've ever really had. I guess really the struggle would just be how, how to manage it and knowing when to use it. Absolutely. And I think that's in many ways become the critical thing is is thinking about that up front, which again, nobody wants to do because it's, um, it's difficult, it's time consuming and, and, and let's face it, it's not the most exciting thing to be, to be thinking about, but it, it really does pay dividends um, when you do find yourself in a dispute scenario to have a well-ordered file it also saves money um in terms of you know lawyers and, and and consultants having to go through all of that stuff so i think that's definitely something i know clients have got their eye on already it's just a lot of it comes down to the implementation in the day-to-day -day, uh, and convincing already busy busy project managers and the like to store things and file things in a certain way so that it's easy, easily found later on, which, as I say, is not a, a task anybody wants to be uh, in charge of, I don't think. I, I think it's just making sure that everyone's prepared for the worst, but rather avoid it. Absolutely. Exactly right. Exactly right. It is, it is preparing for that. There's just always this tension between how much time, I guess, you invest on um, trying to avoid the worst um, rather than sort of spending more time on uh, focusing on the doing and getting things done, yeah. which which I understand, and I think that's the reason why um, we'll only ever get better at it. I don't think um, we'll ever get to a stage where where it's perfect, but the way things are going with managing technology and information, I can only imagine there will be more and more tools to help us with that management of of data that's generated, um, and and it's about probably. Um, you know, upskilling people in the industry, perhaps bringing in new people to be able to manage this sort of thing. Um, and that will be a question for senior management as to how much money they want to invest in, in doing those things. And I suppose what we often see is that it, it takes a, a sort of big project to go wrong and for the criticality of the information um, to become apparent before that is something that is sort of really, really grappled with because um, it's a it's a it's a big cost to incur up front i think once it goes wrong that's when they realize that's when they need to actually make sure they're future proofs hopefully people start learning beforehand rather than afterwards 
Absolutely, absolutely. But experience is, uh, you know, is a, is a great thing, isn't it? So um, that is that is what we all learn from, I suppose. So um, it, it, yeah, but but hopefully we can. Hopefully that is something that the industry sort of takes on board as the technologies um, continue to improve and uh, and you know gets ready for this so that it's easier to deal with when the issue does arise. Great. Um, you provided some really useful insights here. I was wondering if you could summarise it as a total. So if you could summarise what makes a successful joint venture and then if you've got any actionable advice for our listeners. Sure. I mean, someone someone once described it to me as a bit like running a um, three-legged race. And I've always thought, well, that's really just saying that there needs to be some synchronicity between you um, and really it's about cooperation and communication I mean that sounds very trite and, and straightforward uh, and I know in practice it, it's not that straightforward but I do think as I mentioned earlier key is op- operating in an open environment in as much as you possibly can commercially uh, and having effective communication with clear governance in place that both sides of the company understand and investing probably up there with the most important, I think, is investing sufficient time sitting around the table at the beginning of the joint venture to establish you know, what it is that you want to achieve, how you're going to do it, and who's getting what from the relationship, really, and agreeing those kind of benefits and, and, and being happy that each one, each side of the joint venture is is getting something in return because as i said earlier if that's not the case uh, it'll only be a matter of time before issues start to arise and and those should be things that are possible of being ironed out at the beginning rather than much later on uh, down the track when you know lawyers costs and, and and other things come into the equation and i think um the studies have shown uh, on, on joint ventures and their success uh, and failure that Perhaps the single biggest uh, factor in this is that it's important to be partnering with people that have got previous joint venture experience. So people that have been there, they've done it, they've got the T-shirt, seen the film, they know what the challenges are and they've developed effective ways of dealing with those challenges. That's going to be a big factor, I think. So those would be my my top tips from, from what I've seen. That's some great advice there, James. Thank you very much. Pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Likewise. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Bye. Bye.